Le député guillotin dans la médecine Très expert et très malin Fit une machine Pour purger les corps français De tous les gens approchés C'est la guillotine au guet C'est la guillotine Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this podcast, I read through American Writers using the Library of America as my source material, 100 pages at a time. In this episode, we'll be continuing our examination of Thomas Paine and uh, specifically looking at his uh, later pamphlet, uh, The Age of Reason. Now, we've seen in all the previous episodes how Paine's political thought developed from common sense to his pamphlets in the American crisis to ultimately to the rights of man, where he made his fullest declaration of his political thought in the context of defending the French Revolution from Thomas Burke. Many people, however, come to Thomas Paine through their atheism uh, or through his atheistic arguments, his arguments against the Bible and against miracles and against organized Christianity, and that's what they're most attracted to in Paine's thought. And at the end of the day, I think it's hard to say which is more significant, his attacks on Christianity or his attacks on monarchy. Uh, I would probably say still at the end of the day, his attacks on monarchy are probably a little bit more historically significant, but a lot of people still go back to Paine's arguments. And even if you read some of the new atheist literature, you know, big chunks of that stuff, you know, Dawkins and Hitchens and those folks, you know, a lot of their arguments essentially are rehashing Thomas Paine's arguments about miracles and about the veracity of the, of the Bible. Now, as it turns out, his public attacks on Christianity were very selfless. And much of his unpopularity and poverty later in his life was due to the bad reputation he gained as the author of The Age of Reason. Famously, his funeral was poorly attended. I think only six people came. Two of those were, were freed blacks. Now, we do have evidence that friends and colleagues and people who knew him were harsh critics of Paine for writing this book. Uh, Sam Adams wrote, quote, But when I heard that you have turned your mind to the defense of infidelity, I felt myself much astonished and more grieved that you have attempted to measure so injurious to the feelings and so repugnant to the true interests of so great a part of the citizens of the United States. Thus, he's saying, Pain is not only attacking God and Christian, the Christian tradition, he's attacking the very kind of culture of the United States, uh, the citizens. You know, how dare you challenge what the beliefs of the people of the United States are? If you're a true patriot, you wouldn't do such a thing. Now, certainly, I think radical political thought of the 17th and 18th century, you know, is compatible with Christianity and often was. Many radical movements throughout modern history were, of course, influenced by, by Christianity and Christian beliefs. As Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker point out in The Many-Headed Hydra, one of my favorite historical works, if not for religious dissenters such as the Diggers or the Quakers, Anabaptists, or many of the other radical alternatives to Atlantic capitalism, well, they emerge from that. That's my point. They, that some people, a lot of people started from religious radicalism and then got to political radicalism or got or started with religious or spiritual egalitarianism to get to material or political egalitarianism. Religious dissent just sustained ideas of egalitarianism. Their inspiration of these people seemed to be the life of Jesus, the communities of early Christians, and some of the teachings of Jesus on nonviolence and equality. Um, so what? 
we can see here is that they're not really dependent so much on his miracles. I mean, Jared Winstanley, when he talks, of course, as new atheists have pointed out, I think especially Christopher Hitchens has done this, uh, the entire idea of God is rife with hierarchical assumptions, which undermine a commitment to individual liberties and community solidarity. Um, equality from this perspective is, is perverse. If, if you really accept a lot of the religious superstructure, it's, you know, equality is based only on our commonality as fallen sinners dependent on a redemptive creator. That is, we're all equal worms writhing through this piece of garbage we call the material world. Besides promotion of hierarchical sensibilities, religion also imposes external morality, and this makes radical revision um, even, even our economic relationships difficult. David Graeber's book on debt, Debt the First 5,000 Years, talks a little bit about this when he looks at how debt has become a moral obligation, not just a, a social relationship, but a moral one. Right? This is often informed with religious ideas. Right? Jesus pays our debt uh, through his sacrifice. Right? Uh, or our debts need to be repaid um, as it's almost a spiritual religious obligation and that helps bind us to the world we live in and the political and economic systems we live in but anyways on to pain pain's age of reason was published in two parts uh the first is in 1794 and the seventh, second one was in 1795. the first part is more general restating hume's argument that against belief in miracles and presenting pain support for natural philosophy or essentially science instead of revealed truth part two is longer and a more systematic and a close reading of texts uh, of the Bible. I, I will deal with that in the next episode, but I don't think that'll be a very long episode because, you know, a lot of it is just kind of point by point through the Bible. Now, one of the reasons this structure exists in this book, I, I'm sure if Payne had written this under ideal circumstances, it wouldn't have come out this way. Um, but this, the situation was the first part was written essentially when he was in deep trouble in France. Uh, much of it was even written in jail. He didn't even have a Bible on hand when he wrote the first part of uh, the Age of Reason. So, so all the biblical references and quotes are from his memory or maybe checked by publishers later on. But he, he basically had to do it from his mind. It's a little bit more general because of that. The second part, he could write with a Bible in front of him. He talks about this experience of writing the first half when he wrote this uh, in the introduction to the second half. And, you know, you know, he was literally in jail when he wrote some of this. Um, and he almost was beheaded uh, by the, during the terror. And he got out just maybe a clerical error is, is the reason he, he survived that. Um, but throughout the whole book, Payne points out the immoralities, the contradictions, and the absurdities of the Bible. I mean, I urge one to read it if for no other reason that it saves a lot of time reading some of these new atheist uh, works. That just makes some of the same points and maybe they add Darwin or, or something. But I, I think this gets you to where, you know, most atheists are today, essentially, at least in terms of Christianity. He doesn't say much about other religions, I, I suppose. Um, now, Payne provides us with his early creed, with his creed early in the text, quote, I believe in one God and no more, and I hope for happiness beyond this life. I believe in the equality of man, and I believe that religious duties consist in doing justice, loving, mercy, and endeavoring to make our fellow creatures happy. Um, so here we have a deistic position. Um, now, is he 
really deep down an atheist and he just has to put this here to get past editors and get published i i don't know that doesn't sound like pain to me i think pain was always a bold and honest writer and he wasn't the kind of person to play games this way um so i accept this he believed essentially in a god that was not active in the world and he thought the best way to live a religious life is to be good to fellow man right that basically living out a moral life means being moral in our interpersonal relationships not being um, in not following the rules in some obscure text i guess the bible's not that obscure but um you know it's it's, it's weird from time to time anyways Payne believed that revolution would be necessarily coincide with the destruction of organized churches. Um, he had made arguments against religious people, mostly for hypocrisy in earlier writings. A big target of his wrath was were the Quakers who didn't support the American Revolution on grounds of pacifism. And then, as Payne pointed out, you know, if you want pacifism, you got to support the revolution because the British system is warlike by nature. Right. And if you go back, a lot of his writings during the American Revolution emphasized trade, commerce, and peace as the material reasons for supporting the American Revolution, beyond any political ideologies. You know, that some, a republic would be peaceful and engage only in commerce. And that, that's why the Quakers should support it. But he doesn't do the systematic, you know, attack on, on religion. Um, I certainly didn't think organized religion would have a part in these free republics he wanted to um, be a part of. Now, if anything, the American Revolution did lead to an open market in religion. It did get rid of organized uh, state religions, eventually, not, not immediately in every state, but eventually the state religions passed away. There was no, certainly, religion coming out of the central government uh, due to the, it was clear in the Constitution it couldn't be. But uh, in some ways, Americans became more Christian after the American Revolution and continue to be incredibly Christian. Um, uh, certainly compared to um, countries that still have state churches, um, you know, America stands up as, as quite religious, even in comparison to them. And when you look at some of these European countries that still have quasi-state faith, I think in Germany, tax dollars still go to support the Lutheran Church, for instance, uh, or Maybe, I guess, Lutheran or Catholic, depending on where you live or where, um, what churches are nearby. I don't really know. Maybe someone can give me the details on that. But, you know, compared to a place like that, Americans are much more religious, right? This market-based religion, where religions can compete for followers and worshipers and, and contributors, has created this great deal of heterodoxy in the United States, where there's a religion essentially for anyone and any persuasion, even you know, I guess the non-religious can go to a Unitarian church and, and offer up their money to them. It's entertaining to watch, certainly, but it can also be horrifying. Um, why is it that when Americans leave the churches that they were raised in, they found it necessary to replace those beliefs with even uh, sometimes nuttier New Age beliefs, UFO cults and things like that? Um, that's a question I've, I've long had about Americans. You know, you might be raised a Lutheran, move away from that in your adulthood and then it's not you don't just become an atheist you join up some other you know weird group or or take on some spiritualism or start believing in crystals or ufos or whatever it, it's a bit bizarre for me but it seems it's part of america's religious culture 
Okay, anyways, um, the Age of Reason uh, is straightforward and convincing. I doubt anyone who reads this can look at the Bible quite the same way. Most of the absurdities and contradictions he mentioned remain well known to atheists and to honest believers. Um, so, but let me focus on a few of the special themes in the first part of the Age of Reason. His arguments are pretty standard fare for deists, as I understand it. And, and kind of like with common sense and rights of man, he wasn't saying things that were always new. He was a popularizer, and you know that's certainly what he's doing here. He was interested in popularizing arguments made by philosophers uh, for the common reader. Um, I do think he, he believed he would have been more well-received than he was. I, I didn't think he'd be so harshly condemned. Or he didn't think he'd be so harshly condemned. Uh, when he wrote this, um, and that's one reason he did direct it to to everyone, essentially. Um, he thinks that a political revolution requires a revolution in the way people think about religion. Received religion, whether from revelation, you know, God and, and biblical text or, or ancient church fathers, or society in general, is as bad as revealed politics. So here's what he says. Soon after I published the pamphlet Common Sense in America, I saw the exceeding probability that a revolution in the system of government would be followed by a revolution in the system of religion. The adulterous connection of church and state, whether it has taken place, wherever it's taken place, whether Jewish, Christian, or Turkish, has so effectually prohibited by pains and penalties every discussion upon established creeds and upon first principles of religion that until the system of government should be changed, those subjects could not be brought fairly and openly before the world. Okay. Now, that's kind of all he says about politics in this book. He does question, I think, the political, the value of the political systems revealed in the Bible, um, the monarchy of King David or whatever. But um, essentially, he doesn't really lay on this political argument. He just kind of establishes it here that uh, political revolution will lead to revolution in thinking. Early on in the text, he takes on the mythology of Jesus and suggests that he was He's partially a myth. Uh, he's not a full-blown mythicist in, in the sense of believing that Jesus was, you know, not a real person. Uh, but he th thinks most of how he's presented in the Bible, anyways, is, is mythical. Um, there's nothing there that's really not totally dubious. Miracles, third, fourth-hand comments on what he said, all that stuff doesn't really stand up historical uh, as historical evidence. Um so he's not a myth entirely. He probably lived, but Paine does agree that what he's, you know, what is in the Bible as an account of his life is pretty dubious. Um, he takes on Hume's position on miracles. Now, um, if you're not familiar with it, Hume's position on miracles, as I understand it, is that if given something that can't be readily explained, or or can be explained by something incredibly Im improbable, versus Miracles, you should still choose the more improbable explanation because at least it's grounded in material law and natural law. So, for instance, what's more likely at the end of the day that let, let's take the resurrection story as real, as, as accurate. Um, what's more accurate that he that Jesus just was knocked unconscious and not really dead? I mean, we, we know of people who, you know, were thought dead and, and weren't. You know, and really are revived. You know, the horror stories of the people trapped in the coffins with the claw marks on the on the inside of the coffin. Uh, that stuff happened, and there are documented examples of that stuff happening. Um, 
And before we had the clear idea of the line between life and death, it, it, you know, it, it was something to worry about. You know, Edgar Allan Poe was really worried about this stuff. Uh, I think one of his stories, Berenice, is kind of about, you know, someone being buried alive. You know, but that happens. So it's possible that that happened to Jesus. That's more likely than a miracle because we've never seen that happen. Right. So this is Hume's argument on, on miracles. And Payne just kind of accepts this, quote, but the resurrection of the dead person from the grave and his ascension to the air is a thing very different as to the evidence it admits to. Uh, the invisible conception of a child in the womb, the resurrection and ascension, supposing them to have taken place, admitted of public and ocular demonstration like that of all, uh, like that of the ascension of a balloon or the sun at noonday to all Jerusalem, at least. A thing which everybody is required to believe requires that the proof and evidence of it should be equal to all and universal. And as the public visibility of this last related act was the only evidence that could give sanction to the former part, the whole of it falls to the ground because the evidence never was given. All right, so given the scantity of the evidence we have of this resurrection, virgin birth or whatever, we as reasonable people should, should reject these, these claims. His bigger problem seems to be the chain of evidence. Where does knowledge come from? Can we trust secondhand evidence? And he goes through a lot of details about like, where do we actually get the gospels from? You know, they're translated and revised and we don't know really who wrote them. The names on the gospels aren't real. And, you know, no one, those weren't really the disciples who were there. So we might be getting it third, fourth hand. Who knows how many intermediaries there were. So it was a big game of telephone. Uh, which really makes the evidence dubious. And of course, we have believers writing this, people who have an invested interest in people believing in, in Jesus and justifying their own faith. He even uses the same language he uses when talking about politics, saying the axe goes at once to the root. Payne then goes into the books of the Bible, criticizing them as history. And he says they don't even really work as history. We don't really have other evidence backing this up. A lot of this stuff is just kind of silly and ridiculous. It doesn't really fit what we know about history and what we know of the history of the period and, and, and the place. He takes on the idea, uh, idea of redemption in interesting ways. And this really goes to the heart of the Christian story. And it's where he's really being at his most bold. And actually, this argument about redemption is one that, that uh, Christopher Hitchens has taken basically taken in full cloth in his books, and he gave a lot of debates. You can watch them on YouTube, but he, he gives the same thing. Um, and this is about redemption. Um, it's not moral, is essentially the argument he gives. He gives, um, quoting Payne, if I owe a person money and I cannot pay him, and he threatens to put me in prison, another person can take the debt upon himself and pay it to me. But if I have committed a crime, every circumstance of that case has changed. Moral justice cannot take the innocent for the guilty, even if the innocent would offer itself. To support justice to do this is to destroy the principle of its existence, which is the thing in itself. It is then no longer justice. It is indiscriminate revenge. Right? So the idea that Jesus could take on our sins for his own, you know, on, onto himself being an innocent man, you know, isn't really justice because, you know, we wouldn't do that in our world, right? If there's a murderer and he gets convicted and someone says, well, I will serve a sentence for him. You know, obviously that doesn't fly. Um, certainly not morally proper, even if it could be legally um, proper. So this is the heart of the Christian story, though. So if this doesn't hold up, the whole thing kind of collapses. But um, 
you know, if anyone has a response to that, I'd love to hear it. Now, much of the rest of part one discusses Paine's ideas of creation, which for him is the only real source of revelation. Uh, why? Well, it can be studied. The Bible, yeah, I guess the Bible can be studied, but first you have to learn these weird languages that no one speaks anymore, and that takes years and years. Um, we don't really know its origin. We don't know if it's origin of the ideas. The events we're seeing here, we can't confirm or deny. So it really can't be studied. It can be read, but it really can't be studied and interrogated. Unlike the natural world, which is right in front of us, right? We can run experiments. We can make direct observations. Um, we witnesses. And it is the only direct evidence we have that God is being active in the world, right? Unless a miracle happens. All we really have to prove that God is existing in the world is the physical, is creation itself. So for him, creation is the only uh, revelation and perhaps a sufficient revelation for what we need to live a you know, spiritual religious life as he sees it. But even this is somewhat indirect because Paine accepts God as a first cause argument. So this even suggests that we don't need God to explain the details of creation. Uh, here he's really a firm deist, so he doesn't really have the concept of a big bang, for instance, so it's or evolution or these other things that complicate the first cause arguments these days, right? But he he does go through this and he says everything needs a cause, so he he accepts that as a reason from God's existence. Um, but you know, that's that. I mean, nowadays you can have like you, even if you say like God has caused the big bang, well, from then it's it's pretty much running on its own, right? Physical laws and evolution and all that happened, can happen without him. Pain doesn't really have that backdrop, so he has to think of God as kind of creating the world in, in whole cloth. Here's a fat, after this, there's a fascinating section about, which I think is really one of the, when I was reading this, it struck me as one of the most important or interesting passages. And it's about education. You think in a book like this, you know, why is there a, a side discussion on education? Uh, but it's there. And he attacks the entire tradition of training people in dead languages and in dead philosophies. And he prefers here practical education based on the actual needs of people. And he's, he kind of laments how much time is wasted in the study of dead faiths and, and dead languages, right? And why? Well, so, so we can read the Bible, right? That's why we, we study Greek and Hebrew. You know, there's no other real reason to do that, and he just thinks it's a big waste of time. Quote, The Greeks were a learned people, but learning with them did not consist in speaking Greek any more than the Romans speaking Latin or the Frenchmen speaking French or an Englishman speaking English. From what we knew of the Greeks, it does not appear that they knew or studied any language but their own. And this was the one cause of their becoming so learned. It afforded them more time to apply themselves to better studies. The schools of the Greeks were schools of science and philosophy and not of languages. And it is in this knowledge of things that science and philosophy teach that languages consist. Almost all scientific learning now exists came to us from the Greeks or the people who spoke the Greek language. It therefore becomes necessary to the people of other nations who spoke a different language that some among them must learn the Greek language in order that the learning of the Greeks might have been made known to the nations by translating the Greek books of science and philosophy into the mother tongue of each language. The study, therefore, of the Greek language was no other than the drudgery business of a linguist. End quote. And he goes on, but he, he comes to the conclusion, essentially, that education should fundamentally be practical, and linguistic education isn't, and it's a big big waste of time. And as someone who struggles with languages, I, I, I have to concur with pain here. 
I'd much rather read translations than the original. Waste my waste waste my time trying to read the original. But of course, I come from a you know the a, 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 I was raised in the lingua franca of the world, so I am privileged there. Now, this is all building to a celebration of science and uh, to the massive extent of the cosmos, the infinity of worlds and the irrationality of Christianity in relation to this creation. And that's kind of the climax of the first part of, of the Age of Reason. Um, it's a really great moment. It's on page 710 of the Library of America version where he kind of paints this picture of the infinity of worlds and the greatness of creation and then compared to that the kind of the the meagerness and the silliness of the bible and the in the bible stories he then goes on to morality what he says is that we cannot serve morally at least we we can serve a mystery but we can't serve a mystery morally and that's what the religion gives us the ability to serve a mystery the only place we can really draw from natural moral law is from nature itself. We can't go from a book. And even if we get a morality from the book, we confirm it against nature and confirm it against what we see in front of us. Now, clearly Paine is pre-Darwinian here in that he thinks we can actually find morality in nature itself. I don't think, you know, people in the later 19th or 20th century are quite as eager to see morality in nature. I, I'm actually currently reading through the the letters of Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft back and forth to one another. And both of them essentially reject that there's any morality in nature. Um, they, they have a debate over civilization versus barbarism and what's a more full and, and enriched life. But they seem to agree that there's really not morality in nature itself. It's, it's pretty brutal. Um, Paine thinks, yes, you can find morality in the way the universe works and in nature itself. But there's nothing in the Bible that can be the basis of moral law that cannot be independently confirmable from nature or reason. Now, given Paine's political philosophy, which is a philosophy that wants to assume that human communities would be the foundation for morality, um, it sort of makes sense when we look at the whole of Paine's career, how he gets there. Here's how he sort of words it. Um, the moral duty of man consists in imitating the moral goodness and beneficence of God manifest in the creation towards all his creatures. That seeing, as we daily do, the goodness of God to all man is an example calling upon all men to practice the same towards each other, and consequently that everything of persecution and revenge between man and man and everything of cruelty to animals is a violation of moral duty. Um, so I, I don't quite know where he gets this moral goodness and beneficence of God manifest in creation towards all his creatures. Um, so I, I guess I'm Darwinian of Darwinian generation too. I have a little bit of trouble seeing this morality in nature, but Paine thinks it's there. Um, I, for one, would like to see a stronger foundation for morality, really grounded more in just our interpersonal relationships in our societies. Well, that, I think, does it for the first part of Age of Reason. In the next episode, I'll finish up with Age of Reason and finish up with Thomas Paine. Um, I, it probably will be a short episode because I, I don't think there's a lot of big ideas in the second half. It's more of a systematic dethroning of the Bible. Um, but anyways, we'll, we'll see how it goes when I get there. Uh, thanks so much for listening. You can uh, leave comments or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Um, 
and I hope you continue listening and enjoy this. Um, if you do enjoy this, you might want to look at my concurrent series, which is on the complete works of, of Philip K. Dick, reading them story by story. Um, you can see them on the same page, the same channel, and just, um, you know, it's a different episode numbering, but uh, on the same website. So thanks again, and I'll see you in 100 pages. Pour punir la trahison, la haute rapine, ces amateurs de blason, ces gens qu'on devine, voilà pour qui l'on a fait, ce dont on connaît les faits, c'est la guillotine au okay. quai.